Hello and welcome back to session number eight of the New Creation Teaching Series. Today we are going to continue with part two of the message that we started in session seven, which was named entitled Free of Condemnation Forever. And today we are going to discuss two, uh, this session has two major sections. In the first part, we will bring some biblical proof that believers in Christ can never lose their salvation. And in the second part, we will study and discuss about a few biblical passages that seem to imply that a genuine believer could uh, could lose salvation uh, and those texts are Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, uh, the Timothy, First um, Timothy 4, uh, then about the book of life being blotted out of the book of life and the parable of the ten virgins and finally about John 15 uh, about the vine. So we have a lot to cover today. So if you're ready, let's jump in with the first section where we discuss about I'll bring 16 biblical proofs and uh, uh, arguments for the fact that genuine believers in Christ can never lose their salvation or the gift of justification, the free gift of justification. So if you're ready, let's start by with the first argument by reading three biblical passages from Ephesians 2.8, Romans 3.24 and Romans 6.23. If you have your Bibles ready, let's read it together. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Romans 3.24, even from, from this text, we can see for the first argument is that salvation or justification is an unconditional free gift from God. It has no conditions. It's a free gift. We can see that also in the next two passages, Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. A gift does not have any strings attached. A gift is a gift. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the first argument. The second argument is, comes from Romans 3.28 where it says this, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So salvation, this is the second argument, salvation or justification is received by faith alone with no other conditions whatsoever. No other conditions, no works. The salvation is received by faith alone. The third argument comes from Romans eleven twenty nine, where the Bible says this. Let's read it together. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And this is the third argument, that salvation and justification is an irrevocable gift of God. Although this verse in Romans 11, 20 talks about, is found in the context of Israel's calling, we can see that this verse reveals something of God's nature. When God has given a gift to someone or He has called somebody, that He does not repent of it or He does not feel sorry of it. In other words, the call, the gift and the calling that God gives, he never, He's never sorry about them. He, he never withdraws them again. They are irrevocable. So in the same line of thought, we can think, knowing that salvation is a gift, the calling that He called us to is um, the call to salvation. We can conclude that the born-again people have also received the gift of grace and faith and have been called to salvation. And this gift and this calling is irrevocable. And that's a third argument for, for the security of salvation. The fourth argument 
is that the last atom is much more powerful than the first atom. What do I mean by that? Think with me. Before Christ came, nobody could have fallen fallen away from death or and darkness into righteousness. No matter how many good works they did, they could never come out of darkness into life. If someone now if someone who is made new create a new creation like 2 Corinthians 5:17 says and, and he's, this new creation is transformed from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God, as Colossians 1.13 says. If, if, if someone, if a new creation who is transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light can fall away back to darkness in, in the sense of nature or losing salvation, that makes Jesus Christ and the nature of God much weaker than what the first Adam did. And ultimately life weaker than death. So, I'll repeat again. Before Christ, nobody could fall away from darkness into life. Now, when the new creation comes into life, if that new creation can fall back by will, by free will, into the darkness again, then the last Adam becomes much weaker than the first Adam. And that's not possible. The Bible says that life is much more powerful than death. And so if before Christ, if before you had life, you couldn't come out of darkness by yourself. Now when you are in life, you cannot come out from life to darkness by yourself. Otherwise, that will make the last, the last Adam weaker than the first Adam. And that, uh, the Bible says that the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is much more powerful than the first Adam. So there is, it is not possible for a man to switch between nature's uh, free will. So that's the fourth argument, that the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is much more powerful than the first Adam and life. The life in Christ is much more powerful than death. The fifth argument comes from John 14, 16. Let's read it together. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So the new creation receives the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the helper who will be with a new believer forever. Now, if the Holy Spirit comes to stay forever in the believer how can you lose salvation? How can the Holy Spirit come out of the believer if he is to stay there forever? How can he abide forever in me if I can lose my salvation? How can he be taken back? How can forever ever become finite or oscillating or vacillating? How can the eternal seal, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is a seal. How this eternal seal can be broken by us? That's not possible. So because of the Holy Spirit comes to stay in us forever, that, that also secures our salvation, that we can never lose our salvation. The sixth uh, argument, we know that we, we know that in Romans 6:23, in John 3:36, I will not read all of them because of, uh, because of time, but all these four passages and other passages in 1 John all say that a believer has eternal life as a gift. How can this believer become uneternal? Eternal, eternal life includes also the forever concept. When you have eternal life, means that you will never experience spiritual death or physical death again, but mainly spiritual death. Once you are eternal, once you have eternal life, you will continue to live forever. Once we have eternal life, we live 
forever. Seventh argument or reason or biblical proof for the security of uh, salvation. 1 Peter 1.23 says this, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. We know that the word of God is living and enduring and imperishable. And in Psalms, I think, uh, in Psalms says somewhere uh, that the word of God is established in the heavens forever. Um, the word of God is living and active. So the, the new creation, the believer in Christ is born of this seed that is imperishable of the word of God. So if the word of God, that seed is imperishable, that means you are imperishable. The believer in Christ is imperishable and will never perish again. We're moving to, uh, to biblical proof number eight. First uh, Corinthians 6, 17. I'm moving fast, but you can always uh, re-listen this message and the study in a slower pace. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says this, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The new creation is one spirit with the Lord. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is one spirit with the Holy Spirit and with the Father. They are one in essence and nature when the new creation comes in christ the new creation becomes one with the trinity so losing so for a believer to lose their salvation and come out of that unity that union means a breach in it in trinity itself you become one spirit with the trinity it's like god the father would would be separated from the holy spirit or jesus christ you come into christ and your spirit is united with Jesus' Jesus's spirit. You become one. So you can never be separated from him again. Argument number nine. I hope these things bless you and give you peace and assurance that your salvation is forever. Romans 8, 38 to 39. Let's read it first. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now when we read this detailed passage where Paul takes time to describe everything, nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nothing and then concludes, nothing in all creation, nothing that ever has ever been created is able to ever separate us from the love of God. We Christians come and read this and as usual, we add unconsciously something to this. Yes, nothing in all, nothing can separate us from the love of God except myself. Isn't that right? I have put that in there many times. But look at this, it says, nor any other created thing. Are you created? Nor and another translation says, nor anything in all creation. Are you created by God? Are you included in the all creation of God? When God says that if nothing, nor power, nothing can, can separate you from the love of God, why do you think you could separate yourself from, from God? You belong to all creation. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Can a natural son or daughter of yours, if you have, or in general, a son or a daughter of some parents, can, can they ever, in a natural way, 
Can they ever change their DNA to become the sons and daughters of somebody else? No, that's not possible. In the same way, also, if we take some parents, the natural normal father and mother, can they ever give up their, on their sons or, or daughters if they are normal? We're talking about normal people. Can they ever give up on their son and daughter? Even if their son and daughter uh, behave not how they would love to, how, how they would like to, they can never give up on their son and daughter. All the more, all the more our God and Father will never give up on, on us. And we, as, as His sons and daughters, we cannot change our DNA to become the sons and daughters of somebody. We are sons and daughters of God Almighty Himself. We are recreated, rebirthed into a new creation. And the, these, this passage from Romans 8.38-39 assures us that nothing can ever separate us from the love of the Father, not even yourself. We're moving on to uh, argument 10, biblical proof number 10. And we read in John 10.27-29 this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Again, when we read this passage, we add this thing with myself. No one is able to snatch me out of the Father's hand except myself. But look here, verse 29, uh, uh, John says that the Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Is the Father God greater than yourself? Of course He is. So you are including in that all. The Father God is greater than yourself too. So that means that no one, including yourself, is able to snatch yourself uh, out of the Father's hand. And that's a great assurance. Biblical proof number 11. Acts 17, 28. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are His children. This is Paul saying that the natural life cannot uphold itself. The creation, and we know that, the laws of creation, all creation can never uphold itself. There is a, some passage in the Bible where it says that the Word of God upholds everything. The God upholds everything. So everything we live and move and have our being in God, naturally speaking. Now, if we're moving to the spiritual things, if, we, if in the natural, things cannot uphold themselves. All the more, or much more in the spiritual sense, we need God to maintain the faith and the love and the holy activity which He has originated through the means of our free will. He needs to uphold it. To, to, to keep it together. Otherwise, it cannot uphold itself. Uh, in the same way as God upholds and keeps the natural things together, the whole creation, all the more, in the spiritual sense, He keeps, He fuels, He keeps us by His power, by His strength. He keeps us in, saved. He preserves our natural life. And much more, we can expect Him to preserve the spiritual life. 
And we see that in Philippians 1.6, Jude 1.24, 1 Corinthians 1.8, that He will make sure that we will finish well, blameless. He will sustain us to the end. If we read those verses, He who began a good work in you, He will finish it to the, to the end. He will complete it. He will perfect it to the end. So we can, uh, we can expect Him to take care of us in the spiritual sense as well. As He promised in Matthew 6, where he says, do not be worried about this life, what to eat, what to dress, what to, about clothes. He says, don't, don't worry about the natural life. Then why would we worry about the spiritual life when he has given us his grace and his power sustains us, his Holy Spirit. The only thing we need to do is to believe. And if we don't believe, we'll not lose our salvation, but we will not take advantage of His care and of His grace here on earth. In the same way He upholds the natural life, He will also uphold the spiritual life. Biblical proof number 12. Let's suppose for a moment that a believer in Christ can lose their salvation. I have a few questions here. How many sins are necessary to lose your salvation? Can you find that in the Bible? Can we ever find somewhere or a verse or a patch of how many sins do you need to lose your salvation? That's the first question. The second question, how do you know that you crossed the point of no return? Can you ever know? The third question, is there such a point? Uh, fourth, if indeed you can lose your salvation, how come this is not described in details nowhere in the Bible? We have Romans 10, 9 to 10, where it describes exactly how you can get saved by confessing, by believing. But there's nowhere in the Bible where it tells you exactly and clearly this is the moment that when you lost your salvation. Such an important thing should be described. We should know. Like Paul, Apostle Paul, who tell us this is the moment, this is the point where you cannot go back. But there is no such point. How do you know when you lost your salvation? This is a very important issue. And the, as I said, um, nowhere is mentioned when you cross that point where you've fallen away completely from salvation. This is a matter of eternal life or eternal damnation. I believe if there was such a point, God would inspire his, the writers of the Bible to tell us, look, brothers and sisters, if you pass, if you cross this point, if you did this number of sins, or if you did this, you will never be able to come back or you will lose your salvation or the gift of justification forever. Even if it's, it also sounds funny, how can you lose a gift? It's a gift. So this was biblical, biblical proof number 12. Number 13, <clears throat> we know that Satan, and I talked about uh, a lot about Lucifer and the first Adam, that Satan and Adam both fell away into sin from a, from a position of perfect holiness, from a perfect world created by God. They, they didn't know sin. <clears throat> Adam didn't, didn't have a sinful nature. The world was perfect. And from that position, they were able to fall into sin. Now, how much more in a world full of evil, temptations, all appetites and habits against us, how much more... We, we can expect believers to fall from salvation unless God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, keeps them or keeps us or maintains our salvation, our justification. If the first Adam, if Satan, Lucifer, they had the perfect world, the perfect environment, and they follow, fell away into sin, how much more if God wouldn't sustain us in this world of evil, in, this, in the environment of evil, of temptation, of appetites, how much more possible 
more probable is for us to fall away very quickly from our salvation if God wouldn't sustain us, if God wouldn't, wouldn't keep us to the, to, the, to the end. Moreover, if that would not be true, if God wouldn't sustain us, God would also not have any, not, uh, would not have had any guarantee that his son did not die in vain and that anyone will make it to the end. He would not know that if, if people would be left by themselves without the power of the Holy Spirit to keep themselves up to go, it would have been very probable that Jesus would have died in vain and that no one will follow him uh, in this world. Now, in what position is the Christian believer? This is a very important question. It's a theological question. Is he in the first Adam's position before the fall where he can blow it any time? This is the first possible position. Or is he in Jesus' position, the second position, before the cross where he has to earn or to keep salvation? This is the second position. Or there's the third position of Jesus after resurrection where the Christian can, ne can neither fall away, fall away back to death and neither does not have to earn or keep salvation. So which of these three positions is the believer in? First Adam, where you can blow it any time. Second, Ad, uh, last Adam, before the cross, where you have to earn and keep your salvation. Or the third position of Jesus Christ after the resurrection, the new creation, where you can never fall away to death, fall away back into death, and you don't ever have to earn or keep your salvation. I believe it's the third one. And that's why God went to all this trouble to bring Jesus to die, to let allow the first man to fall, to taste death, to taste evil, so that he would bring us in a position of security, in a position of righteousness as a gift where we don't have to work or maintain it. We have to just enjoy it and live in that love of the Father and live that nature out. Amen. God is so good and so wise. He is wisdom. Uh, proof number 14. Uncertainty of salvation introduces in the Christian practice a significant dose of constant insecurity, fear, anxiety, while Christian walk is supposed to be in rest. Matthew, Matthew 11, 28 says that we should rest in Christ. So if we, if we are always unsecure about our salvation, we will always be as believers in fear, anxiety, in insecurity. And moreover, since Christians are always exposed to temptation, they are still doing sinful actions. They are still sinning. Uh, even genuine believers, the constant question of whether or not their salvation was genuine or whether or not they were already crossed the point of no return are inevitable. If you are insecure in your salvation, you will always wonder yourself, have I, have I generally been saved or have I lost already my salvation? You will all, always have this kind of question. And so uncertainty of salvation takes away the assurance altogether and gives us, a, at best, gives us some hope. But there's no full assurance that you are, you are secure in Christ. So without assurance, there is no peace. You can never have complete peace if you're not assured that you will make it to the end. Blameless in the, uh, with Christ. Without peace, you can never have joy. Abundant joy. Joy to the full. Without joy, there's no ability to love unconditionally. You will always love God based on conditions. 
If God does that for you, you'll do that for Him. Or if you do that for Him, He will do that for you. You'll never be able to enjoy the love of God unconditionally. So that's the 14th proof. The 15th proof is that if true believer can ever lose their self, their faith, then uh, the believer's incentive for sanctification becomes corrupted. Your motive, your reasons for holiness, for living in holiness and being sanctified are corrupted. What would be those reasons? The fear of hell would come in to the foreground as the primary mover ra rather than the believer's genuine desire of being holy springing forth from a regenerated heart as an overflowing response to God's initial love. And that is not so that is not the right mover. So fear of hell is not the right reason, the right motive for being God doesn't want you to be holy out of fear, out of fret, out of constraint. He wants you to walk in holiness and to sanctify yourself because of love, because uh, in a, an environment where you are free of all constraints, all fears, all threats, the heart of a person is really revealed when all constraints are taken away. When nobody sees you, when nobody watches you, when nobody threatens you, where, and you are free to decide, to choose, that's when your heart, real heart, genuine heart is revealed. And that's where, we're, that's where God wants to take us as Christians to maturity because He has changed our heart into His heart. He has changed our nature. So when we take away all these threats, all these fears, all these constraints, all these legalistic things, you are free to be who you really are. You are free to walk in love, to walk in holiness as God intended to, not out of fear or constraint. And uh, the last proof, 16, is that a vacillating salvation adds a considerable measure of reluctance to the believer in the ministry of evangelism and the lack of appeal to unbelievers. Why is that? Because the world and life in general are full of uncertainties. So a doubtful salvation is not good news. With the possibility of losing the faith is definitely not good news or appealing in any way. If life in the world is uncertain and we bring a message of salvation which is also uncertain, how is that a good news? So security of salvation is good news when you are sure, when you come and tell believers, come into Christ. And Christ will save you from hell, from sin forever. And you are free to enjoy the love of God, free to enjoy health, to enjoy prosperity. That doesn't mean it will be easy. You will be faced, will still be faced with trials and tribulations, with, with temptation because there's a devil who still fights. For, if he uh, couldn't stop you from getting saved, he will try to stop you from enjoying the full benefits of the gospel while you are on this earth. And he will try to kill you early and to, 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 to bring death over you, to torment you. He loves that, to torment the Christians, to torment believers and to make them ineffective. Our message is a message of, message of hope, a good news, that salvation. Uh, and, and also a doubtful salvation, uncertain salvation says something about God. When God gives something, it's something perfect something complete, something that can nothing can be added or taken away from it. Amen? So these, the, we conclude here the first section of this session where I, I believe I brought uh, enough arguments to convince and 
I, I'm not trying to convince you because I'm convinced, but the Holy Spirit can convince you more than I can do. And you can study more for yourself and find other biblical proofs. I believe that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth as Jesus Christ promised. So let's move to the second section where we will try to answer some objections to the security of salvation. And the first one comes from Hebrews 6 verses 1 to 9. Let's read it together first. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying of, uh, on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and, gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. This is a, a biblical passage that has given a lot of trouble to Christians. And it seems to speak about the fact that a, a believer in Christ who is genuine, who has tasted of the word of God, who is, was a partaker of the Holy Spirit, can fall away from faith and lose their salvation. lose their, And it is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. Now let's analyze this book first and then we'll, from the larger context, we'll come to the uh, smaller context. From a history, first of all, from a historical standpoint, the, the early church was made up of mainly Christian Jewish believers. And these Jewish believers believed in Jesus Christ. Some of them believed in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but they had come out of centuries of their families being steeped in the traditions of going to the Jewish temple to get their sins forgiven again and again and the Holy Day of Atonement and offering other ongoing sacrifices. So they, they, they had a lot of trouble to move, to switch from the law to the faith in Christ alone. And Paul had a lot to struggle with people in his epistles with the early church to move them away from the law to simple faith in Christ Jesus. And these Jewish peoples down through the century before and after Jesus' birth, death and burial and resurrection have been involved in, in a sacrificial system of various and diverse types of offerings being brought forth at the temple altar of God in order to gain forgiveness of sins by God. So the temple sacrificial system by the Jews had ceased for the most part after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. After fire was set to the temple by the Romans and subsequently tearing the temple down by, by the Roman soldiers stone by stone to get to all the melted gold that had run down in the cracks of stone. Uh, but even after the temple was destructed, there were probably still pockets of animal sacrifices here and there being performed by Jews after this time. 
but without the prescribed method for sacrifices no longer present and without the temple which was destroyed, the days of animal sacrifices by the Jews had all ceased. So we see in the book of, the book of Hebrews is addressed pri primarily to Jewish believers who had the tendency of falling away back to the law and to the sacrificial system. And we see that even from the, that the book of Hebrews is addressed to Jewish believers from, from the first two verses of the book of uh, Hebrews. In Hebrews 1 uh, verses 1 to 2 where it says, uh, In the past God spoke to, the fathers by the spoke to us by the fathers, by the prophets. Who are the fathers? The fathers are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers of Judaism, not the fathers of Gentiles. So the father of Jewish people were the Abraham, Isaac. So even from the first two verses, we see that this book is addressed to Jewish believers. Secondly, the book of Hebrews is one of contrast and comparisons. And we see that it compares the new things in Christ to the old ones. And it shows how Jesus Christ is superior to the fathers and prophets in chapter 1. Then it, it shows how, how Jesus Christ is superior to the angels in chapter 2. Superior to Moses in chapter 3. Superior to Joshua in chapter 4. And superior to the Levitical priesthood in chapter 5. In which the priests, in which the priests offered sacrifices day in and day out in the temple. So Apostle Paul, which I believe... Although the writer of Hebrew is not known, we can safely say that Paul is the writer of this uh, epistle. says that all these things, Jesus Christ is superior than all to all these things. To the prof fathers, prophets, all the important things for the Jewish believers. Fathers, prophets, angels, Moses, Joshua, and the whole Levitical priesthood which offered sacrifices day in and day out again and again. They had repeated sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins besides the fact that the old audience were jews the writer of hebrews was trying to take these early christian believers as we see in the first few verses of chapter 6 and bring them up to maturity the the writer had to keep going back again to the basics for many of them and what were the basics they were so caught up in their traditions that they were finding it impossible to move forward and the word again is very key here in the first few verses of Hebrews 6 not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead words because they were used to this again and again they were trying to again repent again when we see even today people again repent again baptize uh, baptize themselves in water to make sure that they are saved and again uh, instruction about washing laying of hand traditions and we can see that mindset uh, through these words again and again in the Jewish believer. And also the writer was talking to two groups of people. Those that were babes in Christ and those that were mature in Christ. However, the babes were constantly going back to their traditions of thinking that they had to offer sacrifices at the altar for their sins. Even though they were saying that they believed in Christ Jesus and the total sin offering he provided for all. So even though they believed in Jesus Christ, they had a tendency to go back to the sacrificial system again and again. These people that Paul talks here in verses 4, 5, 4 and 5 that have tasted the good word of God, have tasted the heavenly gift have, uh, and the powers to age to come. They, they, uh, in other words, they are not believers. They are, 
They proclaim to be professing believers, but they are not genuinely saved inside. They just taste it. They are not drinkers. And a few examples of this kind of people is we have in an Old Testament King Saul about who we know that the Holy Spirit came upon him and he became a new man. He started prophesying. He did a lot of good things as a king, but then he fell away. So he was just a taster. But even a greater example is Judas Iscariot in the New Testament where he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He tasted of the goodness of Jesus. He tasted of the powers, even casted out demons. Demons. He healed the people and in the end he fell away. He was the son of perdition. So he was a taster, not a drinker. He wasn't fully saved. So in this passage it talks about people that are not fully saved. They have they had an encounter. They included themselves with the Christians, with the true believers, that they, they were not fully saved. And in their view, they needed to continue sacrifices like they used to, thus making obsolete and canceling, canceling the power of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for themselves. Because to themselves, they were sacrificing by considering the sacrifice of Jesus a common one, like the other sacrifice, they were sacrificing to themselves again the Son of God, again and again. That's why it says in verse uh, 6, that they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame again, since they again crucified. Uh, and again, the word again is key here, because it reveals to us their mindset of, repeat, of repeated uh, sacrifices. They had this mentality of being renewed and cleansed once a year or after a sacrifice, and they assigned the same mentality to the sacrifice of Christ. But Paul comes along and says that if those people that tasted the grace of God and the benefits of the gospel fall away and go back to the sacrificial system as basis for the forgiveness of their sins, then it is impossible to sacrifice the Son of God again and again. You cannot sacrifice the Son of God and again and again. He is the ultimate eternal sacrifice that covers, removes every type of sin. Moreover, it is impossible to have repeated repentances. That's why he says it is impossible to be renewed again to repentance. You cannot repent again and again like the renewals they had. You repent once, you die once, and that is it. Or you did not repent at all. So in actuality, even if you want to, you cannot repent or change your mind or metanoia again and again. So we, we use this term repent, you have to repent by it, but actually repentance, metanoia, changing of your life happens once. When you come into salvation, you repent once. Then you just apply the forgiveness, the justification that you had. And we talked in detail about confession last, uh, when you sin, how you pray, how you do, you thank God for the, that He has already removed our sins. So you repent once. It is redundant and futile uh, to think that Christ is like the other sacrifice. Christ is not like the other sacrifice. So if they treated the sacrifice of Christ like that, then they remained unsaved. Why? Because there was no other sacrifice for sins decreed by God as a satisfying payment for their sins. So if they downgraded uh, Jesus' sacrifice, uh, Paul says there's no other sacrifice that would take away your sins. That's the sacrifice that will take away your sins. But if you keep denying Jesus' sacrifice, then there's no other sacrifice. And you, you remain unsaved because nobody will take away your sins. 
animals will not take your, away your sins. Amen. So that is why Paul talks about even about the rain and bringing forth fruits in verses 7, 8. Because these people have been rained again and again with the good word of God, with the enlightenment, were, have partaken of the gift of the Holy Spirit. But if they kept going in unbelief, they yield thorns and thistles and they will end up being burned in the eternal judgment because there's no other sacrifice for sins. So if they trust the animal sacrifices, the rep repetition, they would remain unsaved and go to hell. Notice that in verses 4 to 6, Paul, uh, this is another argument for this um, interpretation that in verses 4 to 6, Paul uses the third uh, person pronoun, those, for in the case of those who have been enlightened. And then it is impossible to renew them, so those, them, and they. Since they, again, so it uses the third person pronoun plural to talk about th that category of people that are still on the sidelines and not about those already in Christ. Why do we know that? the beloved that he addresses in verse 9. So in 4 to 6, he addresses a category of people who are on the sidelines. And then in verse 9, he says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, of things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. So it's not you who are in that category. You are saved. You are, But there are some people who, are, who claim to be saved and taste with you the gift of God, but they go back and they are on the sidelines. They are not saved yet. And even if this passage would refer, love, love, the final statement of this interpretation, even if this passage would refer to genuine believers in Christ that fall away from faith, from salvation, nobody, can you affirm that it's impossible for them to come back to repentance? The Bible shows that as long as human persons live on this earth, they have a chance of salvation. Or why do we ask people to come to the altar or receive salvation even when we know that some people if this pastor would refer to people that they can follow in and it's impossible for them to come back to repentance why do we invite them back to repentance that that is not biblical the bible says that even the smallest flame god will push it into flame god has mercy even when it's there is small desire or tendency toward god god will uh, will fan it into flame and god will make everything for people to be saved by his holy spirit will attract people to be saved so as long as somebody lives we can never say that it is impossible for them to to repent before god so the, this whole passage talks about the law and about falling away to the law trying to get to put your faith in christ but then falling away back uh, into the law and even if you are saved and fall away back, it, it does not refer to gentiles to the believers that we are today we are not acquainted with a sacrificial system so that that passage was for jewish we can learn from it but it's not it does not apply to us today because we don't sacrifice anymore we don't sacrifice we don't have that mindset okay now hebrews 10 11 29 explains even better and here it talks about the willful sinning that a lot of christians understand it in a in the wrong way so let's explain the second text hebrews 10 11 29 take note about the context uh, before we reach verse 26 where, where it says for if we go on sinning willfully before verse 26 while we read take note of the context in which paul talks about sinning willfully so let's read from 11 to 29 it's a longer text but it's needed every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice again see here time after time again and again the same sacrifice which can never take away sins 
But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them, he then says. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Nowhere, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. See this verse, where there is forgiveness once and for all for these things, there's no longer any other offering for sin. And this phrase, there's no longer other offering for sin, will be repeated in, uh, uh, in the next verses. Verse, verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he, he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is the evil conscience? The fact that you want to go back to the sacrificial system and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. See again this phrase from verse 18. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled, he who will he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Amen. So the context here is the contrast between the repeated Old Testament sacrifices that never took away sins. We see that in verse 11. Every priest brings offering time after time the same sacrifices. And so the contrast between these sacrifices and Christ's one sacrifice for all sins for all time. And we see that in verses 12 and 14. So it's this contrast between the sac repeated sacrifices and the one sacrifice, which is sufficient. And then verse 18, as I mentioned, specifies that since there is forgiveness of all these things by Christ's sacrifice only, there is no longer any other valid offering for sin. This last phrase is repeated in verse 26, which shows, that, which shows us that Paul talks in the same context when he speaks about sinning willfully. He does not talk about sinning willfully in general, sins in general. He talks about the sin of unbelief in Jesus' sacrifice and moving back in Jesus' sacrifice and moving back to the sacrificial system. That's the sinning willfully that Paul refers to. Then in verses 19 to 25, Paul encourages the Jews what to do in the light of the new way 
of atonement. There's a new way of atonement. There's no longer the one atonement once a year. There's a new way once and for all. So he, he tells them to stimulate, to hold fast the confession, hold fast to this truth. This is the knowledge of the truth. Hold fast to this new way and do not forsake the, the gathering. Encourage one another. The more you see the day drawing near. And then in verse 26, which begins with a phrase for, for, it shows that it continues from the previous things that Paul says. I'm telling this for or because if you go on sinning willfully. So I'm telling all these things about the old sacrifice, the new way. Because if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is exactly what he told them about one sacrifice for sins. This is the truth. And the sinning willfully is not referring to intentional sins in general that will cause us to lose salvation and expect God's terrifying judgment. But it is referring to the willful sin of unbelief in the one sacrifice of Jesus that takes away all sins. Do you see that in this text? It's not about, it's not talking about sins in general. If I were to uh, paraphrase this verse 26, Paul says something like this. My fellow Hebrew brothers, I keep telling you there are no more repeated sacrifices of animals for sins, but only one sacrifice of Jesus. This is the truth. This is the knowledge of the truth. But if you go on sinning willfully in this way and not believing this truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And you remain unsaved under God's wrath. There's no longer other sacrifice. This is it. But if you don't take it seriously, you will remain unsaved. And you can only expect His wrath. Then he continues in verse 28 and 29, saying that whenever somebody did not obey the law of Moses and put it aside, he died without mercy. How much more now severe punishment will receive those who put aside the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The new way, one sacrifice for all time. Those who put away this, uh, disconsider this new way, they are those that trample underfoot the Son of God and regard as unclean the blood of covenant by which they were sanctified. This word unclean is the, comes from the Greek koinon, which means common. And if you are to read again, they regard as common the blood of covenant by which they were sanctified, like the, the other sacrifice, it's, it's the same, they, they regard it as common, like something usual, not something special, not something different. These are the ones who insult the Spirit of grace, and that is the willful sin that Paul is talking about here. It's not the sins in general. Doesn't that free you? This is the, this is the truth about this passage. And if we put put together with Hebrews 6, where is the is the same context. That's the the way that Hebrews 6 also is understood. So uh, this passage does not refer to the willful sins in general. Let's move on uh, to Hebrews, another text, Hebrews 3.12. 3, uh, Hebrews 3.12 says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. It's the same content, the same thing as before. Falling away from God means beginning to profess faith in Christ and then go back to the old system that God has abolished. And that refers to the Jewish believers. The next text is, comes from 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. Let's read it together. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, 
by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience uh, as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in, in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Again, this text uh, uh, about falling away from faith is considered by many falling away, losing your salvation. That a genuine believer can lose their salvation. Now, let's analyze this text again together. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 2, the first two verses, it says that people will fall away from faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. However, in verse 3 and 4, it describes some of the things and doctrines that these people will promote, which are forbidding marriage, abstaining from certain foods, etc. Generally speaking, we all know that sin is the thing that can make a person ultimately lose salvation. Isn't that right? However, the things described here in this text, verse 3 and 4, are not sins and pleasures that people love to indulge in, usually. Can you see that? They are not sins, but they rather are other ascetic, ascetic good ways for acquiring righteousness, ascetism. These people in question do not reject God, but they are, searching, they are searching for God, but not through the means of faith, rather through works. By abstaining from foods, by not getting married, to, to, to run away from temptation, they are trying to acquire righteousness by works. It's not a case of sin that makes you lose salvation. So uh, Paul says that, these people will fall away from faith. There can be Christians who genuinely love God. They are saved, but, but they practice ascetism or legalism to please God because of the lack of understanding and revelation. Because they lack understanding of the gospel and revelation, they try to please God through legalistic ways. They, in other way, they fall from faith. They're not fall from salvation. They are saved from hell because they, the initial faith works. But in their daily lives, they, they live legalistically. They don't apply faith in their sanctifying, uh, uh, in sanctification. This does not mean they lost salvation altogether. But Paul, I believe, had again in mind here, especially the legalists and the Jews promoting the law and works as means of salvation rather than faith. And I believe all Paul's epistles in general deal with falling away from faith back on the law, but not losing salvation. And there are a lot of legalistic Christians today that will still go to heaven, but they live legalistically. They don't apply faith. They, they don't have results in their life of sanctification. They don't have, see so many victories because they try to live for God, not by faith, by something else. In this way, they fall away from faith. They don't, they don't fall away from faith, from salvation, from salvation from hell, but they fall away from faith in their daily living. Amen? That is what this text talks about. Let's move on. We still have a little bit to cover. The blotting out of the book of life. This session will be a little bit longer, but bear with me because it is interesting and uh, it will build you up. It will strengthen you. The blotting out of the book of life. Let's read Revelation 3 verses 1 to 5. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, 
I know your deeds, that you have, have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, if you look at the context of this passage, Jesus talks about two categories of people. Those who have a name that they are alive, see in verse uh, 1, but they are dead. You proclaim to be, you claim to be alive, but you are dead. And here, they are not dead physically, but they are dead spiritually. They are not saved. Who still have the possibility of waking up to life and repenting, as we see in verse 3. And the second category is those who have not soiled their garments. The worthy ones, the overcomers, in verses 4 and 5, which are alive. They are the believers. Verse 5 is the one that we will try to explain here, where it says, And I will not erase his name from the book of life. When we see this, a lot of us, a lot of us interpret that since God says that I will not erase the name of the overcomers from the book of life, that means, logically speaking, that there is a possibility for God to erase some of the people from the book of life if they don't overcome. And that, that makes sense logically. But now let's see who are the overcomers in the Bible, generally speaking. Who are the overcomers? Those who overcome. They are the believers, the saved ones. It says this in 1 John 5, 4 to 5. It says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Only by being born of God you are an overcomer. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you are an overcomer just by being born of God, not by doing anything. So this passage does not talk that you are saved and if you continue to overcome after you are saved, then you will not erase. If you don't overcome after you are saved, you will be erased. No, you are an overcomer for good. There is no possibility for you to not overcome uh, from the moment that you are born again. From the moment you are a believer, you will always overcome. You are an overcomer, more than a conqueror. And your name, the name of the believers, will never be erased. There's no possibility for a believer to be erased from the book of life. Another verse is 1 John 2.13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one at past tense. So it's a done deal. Once you are born again, once you are a believer, you have overcome the evil one by Christ. Because Christ has already over, over, overcome. You don't need to overcome anything. You just rest in his overcoming. You just believe in his overcoming. Young men, you have already overcome the evil one. You are an overcomer. Even if you continue to live in this life, you are an overcomer. I have written to you children because you know the Father. And the last passage about overcomers. Romans 8.37 But in all these things we overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. In another translation it says that we are more than conquerors. Not just overcomers. More than overcomers. So we are overcomers just by being born again forever. Not by doing something after we are born again. Jesus Christ says, Dear, 
because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world and we have overcome the world. We have overcome the evil one. We have overcome sin by Jesus Christ. It's a done deal. So this verse reads the following way. Those who are born again of God will never be blotted out of the book of life. It is a promise and it's a blessing, not a threat. Amen. And other things that we know about the book of life. I want to uh, take away all the uncertainties and all the doubts about being blotted out of the book of life. So I have a few more things. We know that only the believers in Christ are the ones written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is seen in Revelation 20 verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So if you are not found in that book of life, you are thrown into hell, into in the lake of fire. Also in verses 20, Revelation 21, 27. And nothing unclean and no one who practice, practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those names, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And also Philippians 4, 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So only the saved ones are in the book of life. Secondly, we also know that there are certain people that were not included in the book of life from the, before the foundation of the world. And we see that in Revelation 13, 8 and Revelation 17, 8. 38 first, all who dwell on the earth who will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. See, there are people that were not written since the before the foundation of the world. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the the abyss and go to destruction and those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come so that's the second thing some people were not included in this book of life uh, from the foundation of the world the third thing is that we don't see anywhere in the bible people being added in the book of life as we move into the history of humankind human uh, race at the moment of their salvation. So they are not added when you are saved. Nobody's added. So we can safely assume based on the revelation scriptures that we just read. That the rest of the people outside of those who worship the beast. That, that all the rest of the people that were not in this category. They were also written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And these people that were written before uh, from the foundation of the world. Can be people who get saved or not. Uh, and I'll explain. Then we see in Luke 10, 20, how Jesus tells the 70 disciples were rejoicing. So let's read Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So Jesus tells the 70 disciples who were rejoicing that the devils are submitted to them to rejoice rather that their names are recorded in heaven. Now we can safely assume again, that he's talking about the book of life when he says recorded in heaven. Why? Because otherwise there wouldn't be any reason to re for rejoicing if you are just, just recorded in the general book of the living. Or in the, the other books by which all people will be ju judged for their deeds. So he's referring to being written in the book of life. However, none of the disciples were yet saved. Why? Because Jesus Christ had not died yet on the cross. They were not saved. And still Jesus says that your names are now recorded in heaven, recorded in the book of life. 
That's interesting. Moreover, we know that about Judah, Iscariot uh, was among the 70 disciples and we know for sure that he ended bad. Jesus says that you are, your name is written in the book of, in, in heaven, in the book of life, but we know that he ended bad without salvation. He was a son of perdition. It's written in John 17 verse 12. Jesus says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So the son of perdition, Judah was, was lost. On the other hand, we have people in the Old Testament like Abraham, who died physically before Christ died on the cross. And yet we know for sure that they are saved. Abraham is saved and written in the book of life. So being written in the book of life doesn't happen at the moment of salvation. It happened before the foundation of the world. And from those that are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, some will end up saved and some will not, like Judah. The best interpretation, uh, putting all these verses together, I searched for the book of life everywhere in the Bible. So that's why I read, I took time to read all these verses. Putting all these verses together, the best interpretation that I have at this moment is that uh, that will make sense with all these verses and the security of salvation that we talked about so far is the following. God foreknew for sure or determined for his own purposes. He has this right, like he used Pharaoh for in Egypt. He determined specifically that some people will never be saved. And he did not include them in the book of life from the foundation of the world. These are the beast worshippers, the Satan worshippers from the end of time. So he either foreknew or determined, I don't know, but he did not include them in the book of life from the foundation of the world because he knew for sure that they will never get saved. But there's this other category of people, the rest of the people, that will either be saved or not, but they have a, a, a chance, a, a fair chance to be saved. He included all of them in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And that is supported by the 1 Timothy 2 verses 3 to 4, where it says this, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires for all to come to salvation, but that doesn't mean that they will all come, right? So he, he included all in the book of life and he gives a chance and benefit of the doubt to all people. He gives a prospective salvation to all people that lived or will ever live. And then he erases from the book of life those that died physically and left this world but never had a saving faith or a tendency or propensity towards God because Abraham died physically without a saving faith because Christ has not died yet but he had faith in God. He has he had a propensity in God. He put his trust in God although Christ had not come yet and he died with that faith that God considered to him righteousness. Those people that die physically without a saving faith in God or without a, a trust, a propensity uh, and that propensity applies for people before Christ mainly because after Christ I believe God expects for people to uh, to be saved, to, to have a saving faith. Everyone that left this world without a saving faith or without a propensity towards God, they are erased from the book of life. They were not saved in the first place so it is not that they were saved and then they lost their actual salvation but they lost their prospecting salvation. So they had a chance to be saved, but they rejected or refused it or by their free will. So then they died, left this world, and then God erases them from the book of life. That's the interpretation that I have for at this moment. 
and uh, if Holy Spirit will give me something later on, I will gladly accept it and uh, I will uh, repent if needed. <laughs> so let's move on. This is about the book of life. The parable of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, 1 to 13. Because of time, although I prepared to read this, I will not read it and I will just mention what is it about. And we know this parable of the ten virgins talks about, it's found in Matthew 25, 1 to 13. You can read it by yourself. And we see that this parable seems to be talking about being in the kingdom or not, being in the kingdom of God, about salvation and about Christians that can be saved at one time and then lose their salvation, become unsaved later due to their lack of readiness or watchfulness. And first, the parable is about the kingdom of heaven. We know that. It's about a a bridegroom who is King Jesus and about the ten virgins who represent the visible church. Christians that all Christians either professing Christians or genuine Christians. So it's the visible church of Christ. Second, for sure, this parable takes place in the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And thirdly, the harshness of the bridegroom's answer in verse 12, if you read it, but it says this, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you, or I never knew, makes it very clear that this parable is about an eternal matter of life and death respective of eternal salvation into the kingdom of God or eternal damnation. So he talks about salvation, but we will see that it doesn't talk about uh, genuine believers losing their salvation. Now let's see what does the oil mean for these verses. If we look in the Bible, the oil generally represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the oil was also used for anointing priests and kings. We know that King David and other priests. And since oil is the picture of the Holy Spirit, we need to to see what that extra oil in the jar represents, if the oil is the Holy Spirit in this parable. And regarding the nature of the believer's uh, readiness, there are two possible interpretations. The first interpretation is that there can be Christians who truly enter the kingdom of God by being born again and saved, but later on exit the same kingdom due to lack of watchfulness and due to entanglement in sin. The second interpretation is that readiness refers to the fact that a believer must make sure he's in the kingdom and that he is truly saved before the second coming of Jesus or before his death. But once he's in the kingdom and truly saved, he will remain there for eternity. So that's the second interpretation. That's the one I adhere to in this parable and we'll see why. Let's suppose the first interpretation is true. The greatest proof in favor of this perspective is the fact that all ten virgins had oil, had their lamps burning in the beginning for a while and had oil in their lamps. That's in favor of the first interpretation. And later on we see that the lamps of five of them kept on burning due to the extra jars of oil, while the lamps of the other five ceased ceased to burn. However, if we believe this interpretation, this first interpretation, this contradicts many other powerful scriptures regarding the salvation of the believer that we already studied, especially the one from John 14, 16, where it says that the Holy Spirit will dwell in us forever. So if we believe that genuine Christians can lose their salvation, the Holy Spirit can live, then it contradicts with this verse. And not only that, but Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 shows that the Holy Spirit is a seal, a guarantee of the Christian's inheritance until he acquires full possession of it. The Greek word translated guarantee or seal in this passage is arabon, is a legal and commercial term 
that means first installment deposit down payment pledge and represents a payment which obligates the contracting party which is God who is God to make further payments so when God gave us the Holy Spirit within he committed himself to give all the further blessing of eternal life and a great reward in heaven with him this first interpretation contradicts all these uh, passages. Since the first interpretation is out of question, now let's see the second one and resolve the conflicting issues in the second one. And we see when we study closer the scripture that both Old and the New Testament will reveal the fact that the Holy Spirit, this is interesting, can come over a person to fulfill a divine task for a while, but not necessary to remain in him. And I'll give you a few examples. The most illustra illustrative examples are those of Samson, who had the spirit, and the spirit and the anointing of might. King Saul, who had the spirit of prophecy. The King Solomon, the spirit of wisdom. And they all functioned in the, spirit, in the anointing of God, but they were not yet saved because Christ has not come yet. All those people burned for a while by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, but they were not saved because Jesus had not come yet and still belonged to the kingdom of darkness. They were in the kingdom of darkness by nature. But the Holy Spirit came upon them and they did something. They burned for a while. Now coming to the New Testament, in the same age before the death of Jesus, we see Judas, again, the disciple of Jesus who betrayed Jesus and he healed people, casted out demons through the Holy Spirit, right? together with the other disciples, but he ended his life by suicide. He betrayed Jesus and he ended, he perished. So he did the same thing by the Holy Spirit, but he wasn't saved. He didn't have the Holy Spirit inside. I believe you, you begin to see where I'm going with this. And then Matthew 7, 21 to 23 seems to imply somehow the possibility of existence of people who prophesied, casted out demons, and did mighty works of Jesus in Jesus' name through the Holy Spirit and still were not known by Jesus in the end. Pretty much the same way he did not know the foolish virgins. 1 John 2.19 says that those who departed from faith were not really in faith. For if they had been in faith, they would have continued until the end. But they went out that it might become plain that, that they all were not in faith. Taking into consideration that the fact that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, according to Romans 11:29, that he can even use a donkey for his purpose, purposes, as we see in Balaam, and that he loves people very much, we can conclude the following. Even in the age of the church after Jesus' death, God can use different people and gifts to touch other people because he loves them. So you will, he will use anyone to touch other people by his Holy Spirit. But that is not necessarily a guarantee for salvation of the used person. There are persons that are used by God mightily. And they assume that uh, because God works so mightily through them, they assume they are saved too. But that is not true. That is not the same. The functioning supernatural gift is not equal with being born again. Outwardly professing believer can seem to burn and shine for a while, but that light to not have any saving effect on them. And that is tragic. Salvation is a love relationship with Christ. It is beyond gifts and miracles. Amen. And the extra jar of oil is the invisible part of the Holy Spirit in the believer who came to stay for eternity and generates the same light as those who also burn for a while but are not saved. 
in the latter case, Holy Spirit might have only come upon them and not in them. And this is, the, I think, the interpretation of this parable. That those virgins that for which the lamps did not burn, continue to burn, are those people who shined, had the Holy Spirit to do miracles, and but they were not, they did not have the Holy Spirit inside that will burn forever, will continue, will have the extra jar of oil. And we move to the last, last uh, passage from John 15, 1, 1 to 6, about abiding in the vine. It says this, I am the true vine, says Jesus, and my Father is the wine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now regarding the fruitless branches, there have been generally three views of this passage. First one, the fruitless branches are genuine Christians who because of their fruitlessness lose their salvation. That's the first one, the most common. The second one, the fruitless branches are genuine Christians who because of their fruitful fruitlessness undergo divine discipline. Their removal and judgment is physical death, but not spiritual death. In other words, they remain safe, but they are taken to heaven as a disciplinary response to their failure to walk in a being. They are taken early from this earth. The third option is to understand that the fruitless branches are the so-called disciples who experience only an external, superficial connection with Jesus, but are never saved. And that's what we talked about all in all this session. Thus, the fruitless branches are lifeless branches, branches without Christ. And I believe this third option, uh, this third option is most consistent with uh, everything we read in the Gospel of John and in the rest of the New Testament. And my reason, which are five of them for uh, adopting this view and rejecting all the others, are the follow the first one first jesus declared in john 10 28 to 29 let's read it. it says this and i give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand amen so here jesus declared that those to whom he gives eternal life shall never perish then in, in, in 15, 6, uh, chapter 15, verse 6, Jesus says that the fruitless branches will be cast out. And he uses a, a form of the Greek verb balo to cast, to throw together with the adverb exo, which means outside or out. But then in John 6, 37, Jesus uses an identical terminology and says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And, the, and the, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Ex balo, with exo. The first view, the first interpretation of this passage would require that what Jesus denied of the believer in 637, he affirms of the believer in 15 verse 6. And that is a very obvious theological contradiction. Jesus cannot say one thing in, in, in earlier and then another thing completely opposite. So that's the first reason uh, for my interpretation. The second reason why I, adopt the, why I adopt the first option, that the fruitless branches are not believers, genuine believers, is this. 
a weakness in the second interpretation above is that what Jesus says of the destiny of the fruitless branches reads more like eternal condemnation than temporal chastisement. So it's not a temporal physical death or a discipline. Uh, we see that uh, the fruitless branch is taken away in verse 2. The fruitless branch is cast into the fire and burned in verse 6. So it's not just a temporary discipline of the body, but it's eternal damnation. The third reason why I adopt the, the, the third interpretation is we must take note of the phrase in me in verse 2. It says, in me, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Do you think this in me that uh, every branch in me referred to salvation. Every branch in me uh, does refer to salvation, and pro probably it does, perhaps. But it is possible that, that this phrase in me modifies the, the verb bears fruit rather than every branch. So, in, in other words, instead of rendering the verse every branch in me that does not bear fruit, it should read every branch not bearing fruit in me, uh, and the phrase in me, why do I say that? Because the phrase in me occurs five other times in this chapter 15, 1 to 7. And in each instance, it modifies the verb, not the every branch. It modifies the bearing of fruit. It may well be very possible that the phrase in me emphasizes not the place of the branch, but the process of fruit bearing. Fourth reason, the contrast between verse 2 and verse 3 supports the third view. What is this contrast? For having just spoken about the removal of fruitless branches, Jesus explained to the disciples that he did not have them in view, them personally. In verse 3, he says, that is not you. They were already clean. The disciples were already clean by virtue of their response to Christ's person and message. Jesus was giving his disciples instructions that did not represent their own spiritual situation, but had primary application to those whom they would minister, those who would claim to be Christ, but were not bearing fruit. And that makes perfect sense. And the, the last reason is that verse 2 seems to insist that there, there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible, infallible mark of true Christianity. However, fruitless branches have no life in them. They have never borne fruit or else they would have been pruned, not cut off. Amen. So my conclusion is that this passage does not teach that a true born again Christian can apostatize from faith and lose his or her salvation. It does teach that it is impossible to bear fruit apart from a life giving, saving union with Jesus. That is seen in verse 4. And that is impossible not to bear fruit when that connection with Jesus truly exists. Verse 5. It also teaches that some who profess to be united with Jesus, who claim to believe Him, and who even follow Him as disciples, will be revealed by their lack of fruit and thus subject to eternal death. I will end up here and just uh, I would like to memorize two verses. If you are still up to it from this session and... Uh, I'll continue with some other things in the next session because we, it's already too long. So the two memory verses for today are John 14, 16 and Romans 8, 38 to 39. Let's uh, read it together. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That's John 14, 16 and Romans 8, 38 and 39. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless you. I hope this session has, has brought you some peace and you can listen it over and over again or take it slowly. I had to compress everything in one session because of, uh, of, of lack of time. But I'm ho I hope this was a blessing to you. May God bless you until we meet again to the next session. Amen.